Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm speaking to Tim Seymour, manager of the Amplify Seymour Cannabis ETF. Welcome, Tim. How are things? Great to be here, Hayden. Uh, beautiful spring day in New York, so uh, no complaints. Yeah, lovely. All right, well, let's dive in. A lot of listeners uh, listening into the show today won't have considered, I don't think, investing in cannabis-related ETFs or companies. So for long-term investors, what's the investment thesis here? Give us that elevator pitch. So the, the, the big picture is that the cannabis is an industry where the addressable market continues to grow and it grows independent of the, 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 the federal the legislative framework. Uh, this is a consumption story right now in the U.S. alone. I, I would argue we're talking about a hundred billion dollar uh, addressable market uh, globally. Some of the things that are unfolding in the U.S. are obviously unfolding around the world in terms of uh, the, the legislative progress for cannabis. So. For, for, for investors that are investing in consumption and, and in some cases, maybe traditional CPG, consumer packaged goods, um, you know, this is the new frontier and it's, and it's a massive industry that is still very inefficient, very illiquid, um, where you, know, you can make, we'll get into how cheap or not cheap it is. But, but I think that the story is that this is growth. Um, I'm someone that spent uh, most of my career investing in emerging markets. Um, and new asset classes. So, you know, cannabis to me was an obvious place to start investing uh, seven or eight years ago when I really started to dig in because, again, I, you know, I invested in emerging markets uh, and, and as someone that was fascinated by these high growth economies and, and these, these uh, markets that were um, continuing to leapfrog the traditional kind of consensus developed world. And cannabis is very similar. And, and, and I can make more of those comparisons as we go on. But um, cannabis, new industry, high growth, um, uh, you know, high risk, high reward kind of dynamic. Um, but at some point, um, the idea here is that you're talking about a sector that will be a very sophisticated, traditional uh, consumer uh, you know, industry. And whether it's consumer discretionary, whether it's consumer staples, whether it's, um, you know, some of these uh, sub categories and, and subsectors is really up for debate right now. Who knows? Yeah, great. I want to dig into the total addressable market just to cover off that investment case. But before we do, let's circle back and cover your background. You referenced your uh, emerging markets background and experience. So as someone that has invested in new or early stage asset classes before, to what extent did that prove a useful formative experience for investing in cannabis, do you think? Well, one of the biggest dynamics for cannabis is, has been the the obstacles to investors to invest, and 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 also just some of the the dynamics of a nascent, immature, developing industry. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I have a background where I ran a long short uh, EM hedge fund for about thirteen years, two different products over that time. Um, my early career was was uh, when I you know, left business school and got onto Wall Street. I was trading, you know, then sovereign debt. Like so, G twenty four doesn't even exist anymore. But but we all live in a world where we're aware of what's been going on with government bond yields and spreads and some of the macro. Um, you know, EM became to me. You know, with that training, EM became a lot more interesting because I just felt like this is where the new frontier was. Um, went on to, to live in Russia, to uh, you know, in, 
invest in you know, Latin America, Asia. And, and so, you know, that background taught me a couple things. One is that um, very much uh, a lot of your return profile is driven by the macro or driven by some kind of uh, catalyst related to either the government, the legislative environment. Um, you know, global macro uh, dynamics around currencies or, or interest rates. Um, and then there's another part of this is very much a bottom up. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to find great companies that in many cases are either uh, newer companies uh, in, in, in their sector because this industry didn't exist before. Um, but I think all of this is packaged around investing in an environment where liquidity is less, where mm -hmm. there is less institutional participation where there is significantly higher volatility, where there is um, maybe less information. And so, you know, that experience in EM is perfect for cannabis because, you know, the, the, the cannabis story is obviously on some level very much about uh, progression of legislation and, and to mm -hmm. what extent, you know, um, we're going to see a headline one day that says uh, Congress is ready to approve in, in, you know, maybe in the wish list, or maybe the first one's going to be safe banking. Maybe the next one's going to be tax reform. Maybe the next one's going to be uh, interstate commerce um, in, in the sector. Maybe it's going to be global. Um, but, but I think these are the things that investors are, 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 are probably signing up for. But you know, to me, um, as someone that's been investing in emerging markets, I'm never investing with the expectation that I need to see this headline to be successful because uh, I think you, you're, you're, you could be very frustrated. I think the view uh, that I have from being in emerging markets, especially during periods like uh, after long-term capital and the Russia default of, of 98 or um, what went on in, in, in you know, Brazil in the early 2000s. I mean, you know, things can always get worse. Things can always go lower. And I think you have to take an assumption that um, you, you really need to know the companies you invest in. You need to have the confidence that these are uh, companies that are going to survive different, difficult macro, maybe you know, lack of access to capital markets. So um, we can spend a lot of time on that, but I, I think it is important that you've had some context for understanding how this type of an asset class could trade. And, and that was one of the things that really attracted me to cannabis. I feel like I had seen this before. Yeah, got it. Okay, well, let's get back to that investment case then, and we can dig into your fundamental sort of research research process in a bit but um between i read on your website i think between 2019 and 2021 global spending on legal cannabis nearly doubled growing from 14.9 billion dollars to 30 billion dollars um and i think you referenced 100 billion dollars being the total addressable market here so is that the figure now including you know medical cannabis that those sorts of applications it includes medical it includes adult um but it also includes illicit so right. uh, the black market, the gray market, and, and, and I think um, that's the good and the bad here. So, mm -hmm. so the size of this industry, cannabis doesn't need um, you know, to, to open up the eyes and ears and consumption patterns of, of more people. I, I mean, people have been consuming cannabis forever. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so uh, you know, when I talk about a $100 billion addressable market, I think in the U.S. alone, I'm, I'm really just talking about the market that exists now not the market that we want tomorrow. Um, and, and the illicit market is a friend and a foe. I mean, on some level, if you're an illegal operator, you're operating in a world without taxation. You're, you're operating in a world where um, you can move across state lines. You are able to uh, utilize uh, a lot of the uh, either you know, distribution infrastructure that 
kind of exists for other people, other industries, um, but doesn't exist or isn't allowable for cannabis. So yeah, it's very much about um, adult or direct market, um, the medical market, um, the illicit market. And, and then of course, there's a measure that's harder to uh, and more debatable, but either way, the ancillary market. So you know, what is uh, the, the opportunity for service providers, for, for software, for analytics, for, uh, for insurance, for banking, for, um, so it, it's, we're not even really counting those numbers, but, but I'm, I'm certainly investing with an eye on those opportunities as well. Yeah, got it. Um, importantly though, I think it's worth referencing that most investors can't get cannabis asset exposure or a lot can't. I mean, to what extent is there a big wall of institutional capital ready to be allocated to these markets in the near future? I think so. I, I think mm -hmm. investors that are investing today um, are ahead of this wall of capital that are institutions that, that you know, it's not about stigma. It's not about you know, a corporate charter that says they can't. It's really about yeah. can they put the position on? Is there liquidity? Do they have access? Can, will their prime broker allow them to, to, to own it? Can they custody the shares? Um, and, and then, yeah, there's, there's some issues around, uh, I talked about liquidity. I mean, some of that's a self, uh, self, uh, you know, almost circular dynamic. I mean, the industry is more investable if you can invest in it. Um, so I, I do think that those are some of the, uh, the issues that I think the institutional capital, but, but retail investors today, as they have seen in other sectors and, and, uh, sometimes certainly a few years ago, we'd often hear cannabis and crypto, you know, lumped into the same place, very different, um, of course, but, but to the extent that there's, there's still not a real institutional uh, investor base, again, good and bad, creates opportunities, um, probably creates more volatility, uh, probably uh, ultimately, you know, one of the great things I remember about being an emerging markets guy was, was um, you know, for example, if you're, if you're investing in emerging market resource companies, oil and gas companies, um, and it's 2002. Um, like the, the Holy Grail wasn't that, uh, you know, Tiger or Blackstone or Soros would come in and buy, you know, a Brazilian oil company or that the analyst community were starting to produce research on it. Um, it, it was, it was, re, it was re, actually, I should say, it wasn't so much that, you know, getting big, investors involved in the sector, it was really when you got the sector specific investors involved. So, so I, I was running a, um, you know, brokerage and a small investment bank uh, mm -hmm. in the U S and, and that was focused on Eastern Europe. And so you know, it was one thing we were bringing deals for Russian oil companies and it was great to have the hedge funds that we liked to, uh, to buy, you know, and again, hedge funds that could invest there. But when the industry really took hold, is when the biggest mutual fund players in the world, like a Fidelity, like a Putnam, like a State Street, were, were actually had their sector analysts, their, their oil and gas analysts wanted to own Russian or Hungarian or Brazilian um, oil companies. And the same thing is, is the case in cannabis. So at some point, cannabis will come of age when, um, you know, it's not either uh, high growth, small cap investors, or, or investors that have a unique mandate to invest in cannabis, the, the real coming of age will be when CPG investors, um, analysts, um, big funds actually want a 1% piece in their portfolio of cannabis. That's when you know um, the industry will have come of age. And, and that's 
That's that institutional wall of capital I'm referring to. So it's a long answer, but but we're still such early days um, that I think this is ultimately a major tailwind for those investors that are here now. It's you know we can get into it's been it's been a volatile and painful couple of years, but um, I still think that holds. Uh, it's never been truer. Yeah, absolutely. And if we dig into that coming of age, then um, I imagine that at least in part, is down to broader legalization. And I'm keen to understand to what extent that informs the overall investment case here. Is it that the ultimate potential in the cannabis market rests on that broader legalization? Or has a lot of that already been priced in? Talk to us about the proportion of the investment case that legalization takes up. Look, it, 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 right now, it's the biggest portion. And, and we've had these periods where uh, the expectations were high, and we've had these periods uh, right now where it's probably never been lower. Um, mm-hmm. And so even, and it's with great irony, because at this point, uh, you know, I think in the last couple of weeks, we've had Kentucky be the 38th state that signed on for uh, mm-hmm. a medical market that will go through a, a uh, a state legislative process, but will probably come online sometime in, in late 24, early 25. Um, 75% of the U.S. lives in a place where cannabis is legal in some form, either medical, adult, old. Um, so, so it's not as if the wheels don't keep turning and, and the march onward for uh, the legislative process state by state. It's really exciting, right? And, and, and so that's the practical reality. Um, the, the frustration is, so we, you know, if you had asked me three years ago, would we be in this position where you had not just blue states, but red states and, and, you know, this kind of total adoption and destigmatization of the industry, I would have said, bring it on. Um, I can't mm-hmm. believe that. Great. No problem. Um, I would have thought the industry would be that much you know, higher in terms of the valuation perspective. Of course, that all comes in looking back on the last couple of years, right? If you, if you think about where we came out of the election cycle in the US in the end of uh, you know, 2000, I mean, you have a case where, first of all, you had um, a change in the White House. Um, I don't think the White House, blue or red, has ever been a problem for cannabis, frankly. I don't think the Trump administration was against it. I think they had an opportunity to, to be um, very, you know, uh, obstinate and mm-hmm. um you know the attorney general at the time was was somebody you know that that actually never really formally condoned but he certainly didn't uh press on the prosecution side certainly under the obama administration you got a lot of momentum going uh nicole memo was this memo that was written that, that basically said uh the federal government will let the states do what they want to do and that laid a framework um, but coming out of the November 2000 elections in the U.S., Biden administration, um, blue White House. Um, but then when you had the change in the composition of the Senate uh, and you had a potentially a, an opportunity to control the House and the Senate for the Democrats in a January, what was it, January 6, 2021, we had the Georgia runoff. Um, when it appeared that it was tilting blue, um, the cannabis market went to the moon. Because the view was it was going to legislate right away in favor of cannabis, as if this was the number one issue um, for 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 uh, you know those in in Congress at the time. It wasn't, um, but but the blow off top for the cannabis industry was I think February eighth or ninth, uh, two thousand and twenty one. Um, since that point, the industry is down eighty eight percent. 
Um, now we've had different periods along the way where you've had these hopes that different pieces of legislation were going to get through. Um, the most recent um, was in December of 22. So four months ago, um, if you woke up on the morning of December 5th on a Monday morning uh, after a weekend where the Department of Justice had said, we're good with this, we've, we've reconciled our issues. Um, there was a lot of expectation that year end um, lame duck uh, congressional session legislation was going to push you know, cannabis legislation into an omnibus bill like the National Defense Authorization Act, which is, that was the expectation. The industry got so hyped up um, into believing this was going to happen that you had a 30% rally going into that. And, and then when that did not take place and there was an expectation that there, it was going to take place. And then on top of that, you know, a view that's, wow, looks like coming out of November, that there really isn't this ability to push through in the new Congress legislation, cannabis assets dove into your end. Um, you saw a massive exodus. Um, and really in 2023, it's been even worse. Um, mm. It's been a, you know, at a time when it's been an extraordinary quarter for uh, global assets. And, and, you know, first quarter of the NASDAQ was up 18%. Um, you'd think, uh, and high multiple tech companies, higher risk companies, um, companies that are less profitable, frankly, outperform the ones that are the most profitable. That's what happens when you have a risk on environment. Cannabis was down conservatively 20%, more likely 20 to 30%. Um, and so it's back to your question, how much is this priced in? How much is this a driver for returns? It, it's, it's unfortunately been the major driver. And, and, and I think that that's both wrong, but I think on some level, um, it is important that the industry have access to capital that the cost of capital comes down at a time when interest rates are going higher, right? So um, that the industry ultimately gets um, better treatment on its taxation. So um, one thing that probably a lot of your audience doesn't spend a lot of time, they don't have to focus on this, but there's something called 280E, which is a uh, an IRS or a US Treasury dynamic that says if you're a Schedule One drug um, in, in this country, in other words, something that's illegal, um, of which cannabis is on a federal level classified as a schedule one along with cocaine and heroin and things that, um, you know, I would argue this is insane, but um, the taxation is such that you're taxed anywhere from 60 to hundred um, percent on your profits. And, and that includes also your inability to subtract, subtract cost of goods sold from your income statement. So it mm -hmm. makes cannabis almost unprofitable um, universally, but certainly on a retail level. Um, the vertically integrated companies have different classifications that allow them to have some part of their business have more traditional accounting. But, but I, I bring all this up because there are different things that are hurting the industry right now um, that if you, I think you took a piecemeal approach to legislation, did not have to have blanket federal um, you know, legality, um, that the industry would soar, would, would absolutely, um, what is that number? I don't know. Would it double? Would it triple? Um, the answer is yes, yes, at some point. Um, as I know from many years in markets and many years in emerging markets, though, the old expression that says, um, tell me the headline. I'm not sure I can tell you what the market's going to do with the headline. I feel that way about cannabis, but I, I am very sure that these are big positives that would be you know, a part of a re-rating moment for the sector. Um, right now, there's, there's really zero expectation priced into the cannabis industry that you're going to see any legislation, even banking legislation that you know, gives these companies better access to capital. Um, the rescheduling 
tax issue is the one that I actually think there's more likelihood for. And I think that would be massive. But but again, is that priced into the market? Absolutely not. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, that's a great overview. And I want to return to a few of those points because I think we can finish on your outlook just to leave our listeners with something to look ahead yep. for, particularly if we limit that to sure. 2023. But um, before we do that, let's let's move on to the ETF to understand kind of your process for identifying stocks and how you run that fund. So the Amplify Seymour Cannabis ETF ticker CMBS. Um, within that, I understood critical to your investment approach is, is purity. That's a word referenced a lot on your website. I read that 80% of your portfolio yeah. must generate 50% or more of their revenue from the cannabis ecosystem. So firstly, then, what, why is it so important to provide investors with this pure play exposure? Because there are a lot of industries that at some point might be involved in the cannabis space and might have a you know, significant interest in developing uh, you know, a cannabis business portfolio, foundation, infrastructure. But, but you know, right now it's about finding those companies that are here now. And, yeah. and, and, and I think so the reason we use that word pure is because um, you know, there are a couple of ETFs that were some of the first to come to market in the cannabis space. Um, that not only were they, you know, not run by uh, portfolio managers who really were in the industry, who have an experience in new asset classes, who spend time uh, and have spent time working with all the companies in the space, but but they own tobacco companies, they own pharma companies, um, they own you know Scott's Miracle Grow because they're a fertilizer company, and these are companies that have less than ten percent of 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 their revenue base, you know. In, in cannabis or even ancillary cannabis. So um, in many cases, they're not even here yet. So that's the point. The point is investors who are investing in a thematic ETF want truly real exposure to that, not you know where there might be at some point. So I think you know that's the key. For us to have cannabis in our name, you know, as a US 40 Act product, I mean, we, you know, we, we have to be a cannabis fund. Um, so CNBS, which which you know is the how would you abbreviate cannabis? I think they're is, is those are the initials. So that's really what we, we think this is. And, and, and at, you know, at different times along the road, we launched this fund in, in July of 2019, and we've been through two or three extraordinary you know, cycles. Um, it, it, you know, at different times, we've had different exposures that were you know, based upon both the market that we had and the market that we believe is the most appropriate way to be investing. And that, that will always be my uh, ethos and, and simply my invest, investment objective, which is that I want to be investing in the companies that I think are relevant today, but those that I think are going to be the most relevant tomorrow. Um, and, and, you know, primarily right now that is in the U.S., primarily that is right now in the area of vertically integrated companies that do everything from grow to process um, to distribute and sell. Um, there are those companies that are you know, doing one of those things. There are companies that um, either have exposure to software, um, e-commerce. Uh, you know, in some sense, there are those companies that have exposure to, um, yeah, the financial services side of it or the lending side of it. You know, maybe at least the most primitive kind of financial services exposure you can get are, are companies that either have REIT you know, kind of uh, exposure or. Um, you know, so act like REITs for the sector, or are REITs for the sector, or um, those companies that also are are just you know, secured lenders into the sector. So there's 
you know, that's been a, a theme over the last 18 months that's been uh, important for us. But at its core, um, we're invested in, we think, the biggest, um, most profitable, uh, most resilient and strategically positioned companies in the U.S. and Canada and globally. Um, right now for us, I mean, you know, 70% of the exposure is U.S. Um, or U.S. at least uh, centric or focused. Um, but, you know, we, we clearly Canada was the first uh, country to, to really federalize in a way that was significant. And that, that created a lot of mismatches in terms of the size of, of that market and the market caps of those companies. I think at this point, you've had a reweighting of, of where Canada really belongs. Um, and yet there remain a couple companies that I think in Canada that, that are, you know, worth owning. Here. And, and, and I think there was a lot of anxiety and angst about this at one point. You know, Canadian companies could list on the New York Stock Exchange, but U.S. companies couldn't. Um, Canadian companies had uh, market caps that were five times the size of U.S. companies, and yet their market is, is, is five billion. The U.S. market is even more legal stuff, not counting illicit, and, you know, is five times that. It was totally at, at, at odds. A lot of people, I think there's been a lot of um, wasted uh, you know, energy on, on that. It's not wasted in terms of how you're analyzing the market because the reality is, you know, most of the Canadian, all the Canadian companies built way too much capacity, burned through way too much cash. It has nothing to do with being Canadian. It has to do with, um, they got a ton of capital. And, and, and I think the way the government rolled out that industry, it's easy to look at some problems in hindsight. Um, again, the U.S. Is, is making plenty of mistakes on their own here. But I, I do think that there is a very different approach. And, and look, we have a different approach as investors to are you investing in companies that are asset heavy? Are you investing in companies that are asset light? Um, in a world where cost of capital has gone through the roof and access to capital has become even more restrictive, um, you know, we have to think about those things. And we do think about them differently than we did two years ago. Um, but but I, you know, I think you know, right now, you know, in terms of outlook and in terms of what investors should be looking for, you know, one of the things that that I think has been, you know, you asked me about how much is the federal and the legal landscape priced in or lack thereof mm -hmm. priced in. And and even during 2022, when we'd already taken a lot of air out of that sale, um, even before we had that year-end disappointment, but early in the year, what I hear most from not dedicated cannabis investors, but my friends that are investing in other sectors and, and are you know, investing in consumer and this and that. And you know, they'd say to me, and so I'm not worried about the, the headlines around the federal. I'm not worried about, um, I don't, you know, there's no stigma for us. We can invest here. My biggest issue with investing in cannabis right now is that I don't know what the margin profile of the industry is. I don't know what the multiples of these companies mm. trade at, even in a world where they are legal. You know, cannabis is a, is a, it's a commodity, right? I mean, you know, are there really brands? Are there, you know, is this discretionary? Is it staples? So I think those are, those are the things that are, by the way, they're, they're, they're part of the evolution of the industry and it's growing sophistication that comes with that. It used to be as simply like, yeah, is it going to be legalized? Or does this guy have, uh, does this company have, you know, a big balance sheet? Does this company, do they have these five licenses? Um, you know, at one point you were maybe buying the company that had licenses in 20 states, whether those businesses were profitable or not. So um, I think the most important thing and the thing that we continue to evolve and do is find the companies that are 
um, operationally efficient and that are finding a way to either hold their margins or at least get to a place where there's a sustainable uh, free cash flow business. Because you know, right now, even outside of the cannabis industry, I think that's what investors are looking for. Um, so it's a it's a fascinating time because um, the good news here is sentiment couldn't be lower. The good news here is that these companies um, trade at you know one to two times sales, and yeah. and maybe they should if they're if they're not taxed on a on a on a normal way. Um, mm-hmm. But that even you know some of the bigger companies are trading at you know three to three to four times uh, adjusted EBITDA. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not an industry that's expensive, um, but in fact, you could argue it's really cheap. Mm. But the the uh, certainly relative to itself, certainly relative to where we were, um, I think you know the things that investors should be excited about are that uh, you do have big companies that have been successful, and big means you know there's still you know a bunch of companies that are kind of you know north of a billion that that in market cap that I I think are here today, here tomorrow, mm. um, that are better operators that have gotten, you know, been through multiple cycles and have proven that they're, they're, they're survivors. So um, that certainly plays into part of how and who we're investing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad we were able to cover off that valuation point, because I think that's a important part of the investment thesis here. But um, just to cover off your management of the portfolio, I imagine active management is incredibly crucial in a sector and a a theme like this, um, is it important you're able to adjust those holdings on a daily basis? Though, is you know, is that shorter time frame necessary to maximize your performance in a space like this? And as a result, are you trading in and out of positions to capitalize on price action? How how does that work? That's a great question because I think yeah, as my long short uh, equity hedge fund managers had you know has had my background is doing that. Um, mm. Canada, we are not doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have the ability to do it, yeah. But again, I think liquidity makes it challenging to do that too. And I think you you could um, you know you really could you, you could wrap yourself up in the middle of some volatility at times. I mm. think it's important. I think there's there's a lot of alpha that can be generated by finding these extreme momentum um, you know places. Clearly, in hindsight. Um, fading some of these extraordinary moves around the excitement of you know the federal um, is is something that you could have made a lot of money in. Um, you know what I also say though is is that in markets, um, especially markets that are volatile and volatile to the downside, you know fund managers don't tend to get fired on the way down um, for you know either you know being you know in line with a drawdown in an industry if you underperform or if you do some things that are you know clearly off sides that's different but but where you really have a problem is if you're not invested when the market's going up and mm-hmm. and if you or if you're not getting the upside people investing in cannabis want that upside they they want to be invested so you know where i think we've chosen to be a little bit more active is where we've been adjusting some of the cash in the portfolio. Um, and again, you know, no more than, we could never have any more than 20% cash in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I think there, there's, there's you know, part of that is where I think we we are making adjustments. I think, you know, look, we, we are trying to be active around uh, re-rating events for particular companies, either uh, maybe a terrible 
earnings release, you know, left an opportunity to be adding to a company we like. And for whatever reasons, we made a view that that was not appropriate. Um, there's there's a lot of of, of kind of you know correlation of one investing in cannabis. So at times, you know, I think there there really has been an opportunity to be uh, more active. What, but what I think is critical is is that we don't need to wait for quarter end uh, or month end. Uh, to to make changes to the portfolio if we see an opportunity um, or if we see a corporate governance risk. We don't have to wait for that company to blow up and, and uh, uh, or quarterly. I mean, that to me is the most important part of active management in cannabis. Um, I think if in, in, in three years, uh, five years where I hope this industry is, um, I think we can be trading a lot more actively, um, mm-hmm. especially in higher uh, liquidity backdrops. For, for names, and I think that's going to be how the industry continues to evolve. And I think that the managers that are, you know, have that kind of a background will will do well. I think right now it's been about um, being thoughtful about stock picking, um, avoiding avoiding companies that have been corporate governance nightmares, um, and and um, not getting too drawn into some of the euphoria in the sector. Got it. Okay. Well, let's finish with a couple of questions just on the constituents within the portfolio, just to make it a little less abstract for the for the listeners. You mentioned your cash position, which I think is around 10%, but then your other yeah. larger weightings in the fund at the moment are multi-state operators like Tilray, for example, which when I looked yesterday, commanded a 9.79% weighting. Um, so I imagine it's around the same today, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm interested about Tilray. It's a company that I think even a lot of listeners that aren't that familiar with cannabis will have heard of. So what specifically do you like about Tilray? So two things. Um, Tilray is is a Canadian company. So it's a Canadian LP. And, mm. and technically, um, it's not a multi-state operator. It's, it's actually, it's, it's a company that has... Um, you know, I think a significant U.S. footprint. Um, their footprint in the U.S. is as much around. Uh, of course, they have the spirits industry, um, yeah. so liquor, beer, um, and then even some distribution, um, some CBD, and and they have a major. Uh, they, you know, they're the largest player in in Europe, especially on the distribution side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's important to know that Tilray is also one of these companies that I think was was one of the early Canadian companies that. That you know, had this extraordinary market response because mm. it was traded on the Nasdaq and it got follow through and it was, you know, and and really it you know we never owned Tilray for the first year and a half of this fund. In fact, we didn't even own Tilray until uh, they merged with another Canadian company called Afria that we right. thought was the best operator and the most profitable operator in Canada. And so that's when we began to not only not only did we have a Tilray position as a result of that merger, but then we we started to add. Um, Tilray has also made a uh, kind of an optionality, the optionality around investing in the U.S. So they bought uh, some of the MedMen assets, which was a big operator in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think upon federal legalization, their position to uh, to exercise that option. So I think they're they're very well positioned. I think of them as really you know one of the few um, big global cannabis companies um, that that really. You know, Erwin Simon is the CEO. He's got a background in, in CPG. He's got a background in consumer products. And mm-hmm. um, I think there was a lot of criticism about the exposure that they took in the U.S. Uh, to buy, you know, a distillery and to buy a couple beer companies. They own Sweetwater. They own Montauk Brews. These are like really popular um, craft brews, um, mm-hmm. but they're not cannabis companies. And people said, well, hey, you know, 
um, are you trying to like put the wool over on us and say this is you know like we're we're in the U.S. See, um, no, I think it was a thought about we wanted to bolt on um, cash flow generative businesses. Um, I think there's a view at some point that the beverage segment within cannabis, so THC beverages, will be a, a very big segment. I think it will be. So I think these are really smart moves. I, I you know, I mean, Tilray's had some of the same problems as all the other companies. They've run through a lot of cash. Um, the, the market in Canada is very limited. Um, and just back to what people will see when they when they log in to look at the constituents of CNBS. I say this about any ETF. Look under the hood. See what the ETF actually owns. I mean, that's whether you're owning um, a tech ETF or a, a home builder's ETF. I mean, the, the largest position in, in the home builder's ETF is, is not a home builder. You know, so, so mm. something that people will also see. I just want to make clarify this, too, because if you look in many places, and I think whether it's on a Bloomberg or even on a Reuters or maybe even on the CNBC site, um, not CNBS, but like someone like CNBC or another big financial media, you often won't see a lot of the U.S. exposure that we have because we own, we own these positions through total return swaps. So a company like Green Thumb or Cureleaf, these are, these are the two largest operators in the U.S. Um, and we own them via swap because, again, it's a federally illegal landscape. Um, we're a U.S. 40 Act fund, which means that we, we can't be investing in federally illegal stuff. We got a legal opinion. We have the ability, though, to own these companies um, essentially on swap. So we do own them. Um, but often what you'll see, you won't see that exposure in a lot of the, uh, the description pages. Certainly mm -hmm. you will if you go to the Amplify site and you look at our tear sheet and you look at you know, the, 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 you know, the printout. Um, but I want to explain that because a lot of people are like, well, it doesn't say you really own all these companies. In fact, depending on where you look, you might not see that. But you know, the largest proportion of our, of our balance sheet Really, Tilray, which is a Canadian LP with U.S. exposure, European exposure, and Canadian exposure, you can see that. But, but Green Thumb, Purely, Truly, Cresco Labs, um, these companies are you know core positions at the top of the balance sheet in the portfolio because they are the biggest companies in the U.S. and they are the companies that we think are are, are winners here, even in a difficult environment. So I just want to make all that clear. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an important point to clarify. And I think a fascinating insight to end on, actually, I think, you know, this conversation could have lasted another hour or even two. So I'll have to get you back on for another, another episode. But I think I love, that just... I'd love to do this again. You know, it is, it is a complicated industry. And I think for, for the retail investor, whether uh, in, in UK, Europe, US, this is, this is a fascinating industry, one that I think a lot of people want exposure to. Um, but it's not been easy. It's complicated. And things like, you know, what do you own? Where do you own it? How do you own it? In what form? Um, this is part of what we're supposed to do as an ETF and kind of demystify and destigmatize that. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Well, I think that just leaves me to say thank you very, very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. I, I really enjoyed the time. This is a great forum to, to talk about it. Sometimes we don't get this amount of time to have a thoughtful conversation. So I'm ready to come back at any time. There will be news, I'm sure, in the cannabis space uh, evolving. So we're ready to talk about it.